All right, Galatians chapter 4 this morning, Galatians chapter 4. Over the last few weeks, perhaps as you've listened to the past few message, messages from Galatians, God has been working on your heart as you recognize perhaps the legalism that lurks in all of us. You struggle with judging others and with judging yourself. The Christian life for you maybe is not one of joy, but it's one of conflict and bitterness, frustration, or even fear. You don't want to live this way, but you can't find a way out. And as we enter the final sections of the book of Galatians, these final chapters, Paul provides hope for that trapped believer. And as we begin these sections today... Paul addresses two groups. First, he addresses the group that's pushing their rules and their legalism on everyone else. And then secondly, he addresses those who've been entrapped and tempted by the legalism around them. And and in both cases, Paul makes one important appeal. If you get nothing else from today, this is what I pray you get. Stand in the freedom of provided through Christ. Stand in the freedom provided through Christ. Now, rather than read through the extended text, uh, verse 21 of chapter 4, we're going to go all the way through verse 6 of chapter 5 this morning. Uh, We'll read the two sections as we address each appeal Paul makes to us. And and in in this extended section, Paul makes two important appeals to stand in the freedom provided through Christ. And we find the first appeal closing out chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And in this section, Paul appeals to those who demand that others follow their rules and follow what they think, reminding us that we have been freed from slavery to rules through Christ. We have been freed from the slavery to rules through Christ. Let's look at uh, verses 21 through 31. And in this, Paul appeals to the Christians by pointing to a couple of narratives in the Old Testament and uses them as a way of example. So verse 21, Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, having children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit... So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? 
Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, as you read this, perhaps it's a little bit confusing, and so we want to work through this allegory together. We'll begin with this allegory that Paul lays out, this allegory of Abraham. And he begins by saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? This He's talking about the ones who have an interest in imposing some sort of legalistic scheme on, on themselves and others. We're reminded of this group in the Galatian churches in Acts chapter 15, where we're told this group came from Jerusalem and they began to tell the people, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, the only way to be good with God is to follow the rules of the Mosaic law, to follow the law. And today we may not say these exact same things, but we certainly are tempted to tell people in order to be good Christians, in order to be good with God, here are the rules you have to follow. And if you don't, I mean, I don't understand how you can, how you can even love Jesus. Well, Paul helps by pointing to the patriarch Abraham and his life as an example that we are free in Christ. Now, there's an important statement Paul makes right in the middle of this that we note. In verse 24, he says, Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. This is a unique statement by Paul made here. Typically, Paul just uses the Old Testament and doesn't say anything about it. He just quotes. And as you work through the Pauline epistles, they are filled with Old Testament references. But here he says, This can be interpreted allegorically. In other words, he's saying this can be used as an example. Now, Paul is not saying, I think because he's, he makes this point, he's not saying that this was built into the Old Testament narrative. So as you read Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, that this is what the author intended to say. He's saying, that's not it. I'm using it as an example. I'm using it to make a point. And he takes pains to emphasize that this is not the meaning of the text. That's important because we often say this. The text cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the people it was written to. So when we see this text, it does not give us freedom then to use the Bible to mean whatever we think in our great imagination it means. We are not Paul. Paul was an apostle. We are not. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We are not. And Paul was saying, this isn't what the text meant. I'm using it as an example, as an illustration. So let's talk about this illustration, this allegory. He says in verse 22, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through promise. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And so he's referring to the two sons of Abraham here, Ishmael and Isaac. First, he speaks of Ishmael and Hagar. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to think back to Genesis chapter 16. God promised Abraham that he would have a son in his old age. 
who would inherit all that he had. But not only would he inherit all that he had, he would inherit the special promise from God, that God would grant to him land, that God would grant to him a people that are greater than the sands of the sea, but that most importantly, God would grant to him one who would bless the whole world. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come through Abraham. And the years pass, and no child comes. And so finally, Sarah, Abraham's wife, being quite old herself, unable to have children, tells Abraham, take my maidservant as your wife and have a child with her. Now, in our context, we see that and we think that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. But we need to understand the culture of that day. That was quite uh, popular. It happened all the time. It was a way to pass on things to your own family. And so Abraham has a child through Hagar. She was the slave woman. It says she was born according to the flesh. In other words, it was a natural way. It was something that no one would look at and think, wow, that was special. It was normal for this to happen. But he notes this was not the son of promise. This is not the son God promised. Although he was Abraham's son, he was born a slave because he was born to a slave. And he says this is just like the Mosaic Covenant. On the other hand, God fulfills his promise. For this, we think of Genesis chapter 21. God fulfills his promise. God provided a child to Abraham through Sarah. And this child was a miracle. Yes, it was born in a natural way. This was not like a virgin birth, but it was still a miraculous birth because Sarah was old. And not just old, she was old, old. And Abraham was even older, older than her. Right? They didn't have kids at that age. Even back in that day, Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90. You can imagine having a child at that age. There's a reason we have kids when we're young, right? But God, through this miraculous intervention, gives Abraham and Sarah a child, Isaac. And this child received the promises made to Abraham and, and this, as the son of of Sarah. And then he explains this. In verse 24, he says, These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So both boys are the sons of Abraham. However, they end up in two very different places because of the different statuses of their mothers. The sons had different statuses. And though, even though Abraham had fathered them both, Ishmael was born into slavery and Isaac was born free. And Paul uses this difference as an example of following a set of laws and rules versus following Christ. 
Both have their roots in Abraham. The Mosaic law has its roots through Moses in Abraham, but one is fleshly and results in death, and the other is spiritual and results in life. He begins with Hagar. He says, Hagar is like the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. She's born, she, th- this happens outside of the promised land. It happens outside of the promise of God. That is the covenant that he is relating Hagar to. And he says, this is just like the earthly Jerusalem. That day in Jerusalem, the people were still following the law. Even th- today, they do this thinking that by following the law, they will be good with God. But the end, he says, is slavery to rules. It's not freedom. It's slavery. On the other hand, Sarah is like the other covenant. The covenant we find in the book of Jeremiah. The new covenant, the promise that God will be our God, that he will implant his spirit in us and will give us an eternal kingdom. This is the covenant of promise. He says this is like the heavenly Jerusalem. And it gives us freedom in Christ. We're reminded of this over and over through Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we are reminded that our citizenship is in heaven. We look for a city not here. We are bound to a citizenship not here, but one that is eternal. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see as well this same dichotomy. In verse 18, The writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable angels in festal gatherings. We're reminded that God did not save us to bind us by the law to this earthly Jerusalem, but rather to a heavenly kingdom. And so he tells us in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 54. He says, it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He's quoting from Isaiah 54, verse 1. Israel had suffered during their captivity. They had suffered not seeing the promise of God. But there would come a time when the promise of God would come through Christ. And we see this prophecy made just a few verses later, in a, a few verses earlier, excuse me, in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. That the Messiah would come, and as a result, salvation would come. And the spiritual seed of Abraham would be realized. So this is what he's saying. He says, here's the picture. You guys are acting like Hagar, not like Sarah. But what does this mean for us? Well, he does apply the allegory for us. In verse 28, he tells us what this means. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit this with the son of the free. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. And here he makes three important applications. First, he tells us Christians are children of the promise. 
He says, verse 28, you brothers, Christians, are children of promise. What is that promise? It is the promise of eternal life. It is the promise of hope and a future through Christ. It is the promise that all will be made one in Christ. We're reminded of Romans chapter 11 where Paul talks about the fact that God in his sovereignty removed some branches from this bush that is his people. And he took branches from a wild olive tree, a group that weren't his people, Gentiles, and he took them and he grafted them in to make them part of his people. In other words, from all people, one citizenship of heaven will come. And it means that those promises made to Abraham are promises made to us. It means the promises of the Old Testament are promises for us. Even though we are not children by flesh of Israel, through Christ we become partakers of that promise. And it's all done not through the law, not because we were part of this Mosaic covenant, but through the righteousness of Christ. The second thing he tells us is that legalism will persecute promise. He says, just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. And he's referring to Genesis 21 as, as Isaac comes of age to receive the promise from Abraham. Ishmael begins to mock him and ridicule him. And this wasn't just simply brotherly fun, but rather was hatred and animosity and persecution. And he says, just as it happened then, it happens now. And the remarkable thing is he's telling us that persecution doesn't just come from the outside. The pressure to follow things other than God does not just come from the world, but sometimes it comes from people in the church who are unbelieving but are religious. They follow rules and not Christ. And he says, what are we to do with them? Well, the third application is that we are not to enslave ourselves to rules, but rather to live in the promise. He says, what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He quotes Sarah. This is what Sarah says to Abraham. And we understand as we read in Genesis that this was a sinful thing for Sarah to do. Paul is using this as an example. Sarah told Abraham, cast out that son of the slave woman. He's mocking my child. He should not, he doesn't get to inherit with him. Get rid of him. And Paul says, this is actually what we should do to those who would impose their rules on us. We ought to cast them out, have nothing to do with them. Rather, we must live in the promise. He says in verse 31, we are not children of the slave, but children of the free woman. So we ought to live in that. All of this he tells us to say, those who would impose rules who would say to be children of God, to be children of Abraham, you've got to follow the Mosaic law. He says, this is not the case. This is not the children. This is not the promise that God has given to us. Instead, we should live in freedom. Paul then turns to those who would surrender to rules, <coughs> excuse me, that others are imposing on them. And he challenges us when we think that we are going to be good with God because we follow this set of guidelines that we have put on our life he tells us, he challenges us, live as a free person in Christ's righteousness. This is verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, 
And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul points to people who are tempted to think, if I follow this set of rules, I'm good with God. If I make sure that I am in church every time the doors are open, if I make sure that I say the right things, if I make sure that I bring my Bible and smile, if I make sure that I wear the right clothes, I am good with God. He challenges us with three important arguments. The first argument is in verse 1. Christ died for our freedom. Christ did not die for us to be in slavery to rules, but rather for our freedom. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He says, for freedom, freeing us from slavery to sin and the law, Christ set us free. So so stand uh, continually and habitually on this freedom. Don't be ensnared again. Don't be captured again, entangled in this yoke, this net of slavery. Often, we believe that we are saved by grace. That it is all through Christ. But the moment we say we are saved, we begin to think that now we are grown in Christ by following a strict set of standards. And we measure one another by these standards. And we judge each other by these standards. When someone walks in the room and they're wearing nice clothes, and they look clean cut, and they look good, we think, oh, I'll bet they love Jesus. But when someone walks in the room, and perhaps they have turned their body into a canvas, they've got their Mr. T starter kit going on, they don't quite know how to dress, we think, oh, I don't know that they love Jesus. And it might be that we see people who are here occasionally. They're here on Sundays, but they're not here Wednesday. And we think, oh, they don't really love Jesus. They just kind of love Jesus. Or we see people that don't dress the way we think they should or listen to music different from us, and we begin to judge them. In our own life, at times, we recognize we don't spend time in the Word like we ought. We're convicted because our prayer life is not what we want it to be. We struggle with that sin yet again. And we fear that God is going to come down with His hammer and destroy us. But Paul reminds us that Christ died for our freedom. He reminds us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God did not save you to bind you again to a set of man-made rules. God saved you to freedom in Christ. This leads then into the second important argument that he makes. 
looking to rules, looking to the law, to works for righteousness, that comes at a high cost. Doing that is not just something that, well, whatever, it doesn't really hurt anybody. It actually comes with a high price tag attached to it. The first price tag is that Christ becomes worthless. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He begins with this really important word. He says, look. What's he saying? He's saying, pay attention to this. Mark my words on this statement. If you follow the law thinking that it makes you right with God. In this case, if you accept circumcision, if you think because you eat a certain way or you dress a certain way or you do certain things that it makes you better with God than other people, you need to listen. Christ will be worthless to you. The expression Christ will be of no use to you at all may be thought of because of that future tense. He's saying Christ will be in the future. It'll be of no value to you. When you stand before God, Christ won't come to your aid because you're expecting something else other than Christ's blood. You're expecting something else to make you righteous other than Christ's sacrifice. You make the cross of Christ absolutely worthless. If you think that you can make yourself good with God, you have devalued the work of Christ. This puts a high cost on this idea when we begin to impose our rules on other people or when we begin to think of them on ourselves, that that's what's making us good with God. We are actually saying Christ's cross was not sufficient. That's a big deal. Because it's turning righteousness into works yet again. There's a second reason that it comes at a high cost. And he says in verse 3 that if you do this, you must obey the law perfectly. If you expect rules to make you righteous, then you have to obey them absolutely perfectly. Because again, to be righteous before God, you must be absolutely righteous. We're reminded of James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. He says if you accept circumcision, if you think you are still under the law, if you think that that still is what's going to make you good with God, then you are obligated, morally obligated to keep the entire law. But we're reminded again that we cannot do that. And so it comes at a high cost because we cannot fulfill that moral obligation. As a result, the third thing is that we are severed from Christ. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. We have detached ourselves from the work of Christ. Because you've made Christ worthless and you cannot obey the law perfectly, you have separated yourself from Christ and made him inactive in your life. Years ago, as an ornery high schooler, I was sitting in the car with a few of my friends and the young lady was driving, a friend was driving, and she was a blonde, we'll just put it that way. We loved to have fun at her expense. And as we were sitting at this red light, unbeknownst to her, I popped the car into neutral. The light turned green and she hammered that gas pedal and the car did 
absolutely nothing. Just made a lot of noise. We went nowhere. Why? Because we had detached the engine from the wheels. We put the transmission into neutral. Now, to finish the story at our fun, as she's looking around at what's going on, we pop it back into drive and it goes and she has no idea what's going on and we informed her that it was because of her muffler bearings. That's neither here nor there. The point was we had detached the power of the car from the wheels. In the same way, when we rely on rules to make us good with God, we detach ourselves from the power of the cross. We render it powerless. And this is incredibly sad because it is the most powerful thing in all creation. Through it, the righteousness of Christ is placed on us. But we sever ourselves from Christ. Why is it that you have no joy in your life? Why is it that you are constantly in conflict with those around you or in your own heart? Why is it that you cannot overcome sin no matter how many rules you've placed upon yourself and others? It's because you've separated yourself from that which is true power, the righteousness of Christ. You can't grow through your own efforts. And as a result, the last high cost is that you fall away from grace. Verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. You have lost out of it. You've lost its grip on you. Now, it doesn't mean you've lost your salvation because once you have come to Christ, you will always be saved. There is no condemnation, but it does mean that you've fallen out of that sphere of God's grace where he will work in you and grow you and use you. The tragedy Warren Wearsby tells us of this fall is that they've robbed themselves of all the good things Jesus Christ could do for them. And rather than living in this state of freedom, rather than living with joy and peace and grace, we live in conflict and fear and doubt. But God has a better way for us. Christ died to make us free. So don't bind ourselves to rules, rather live in Christ. But won't this mean then that anybody does whatever they want and it leads to mayhem? No, Paul reminds us again in verses 5 and 6, the third important argument. Waiting for eternity, we live by faith, working through love. Waiting for eternity, we live by faith, working through love. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He tells us first, we are waiting for eternity. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That day when Christ's righteousness will be placed perfectly on us and we will no longer struggle with sin. That day when Christ returns and all is made right, we eagerly long for that and look for that. And in the meantime, we understand that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. In other words, following the the set of rules or not following the set of rules is not what matters, but rather our faith in Christ. And this faith then works through love. 
Because we have faith in Christ, we live in a way that we want to make Christ look as good as He really is. And we love Him with all our heart. And so we work. But as we said last week, that work looks different for every single person. But it is there. Colossians chapter 1, 10 and 11. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. See, this growth, these works come as a result of growth with God, not to produce growth with God. These results come out of gratefulness for the righteousness of Christ on our account, not to put the righteousness of Christ on our account. See, when we understand the freedom of Christ, it does not result in anarchy and mayhem and people living however they want. When we understand the freedom of Christ, it results in a people who passionately love God and want to serve Him in any way that they can. And so we stand in freedom. Many in this room today are relying on our effort to make us look good. We think that because we have abilities or because we follow a a set of rules, because we have positions, we're good with God. We then expect others to follow the same rules and and we judge them for their failure. And as a result, we live in frustration and bitterness and even fear. This is not what God wants for us. It's not the way of the cross. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So instead of focusing on your rules... Focus on knowing Christ. Instead of focusing on judging others, focus on knowing Christ and serving those people. Instead of seeking to elevate yourself because you do these things or you have these positions or you have certain abilities, humble yourself and elevate Christ then you will find true joy and contentment. What do we do with all of this? It's the same three things we saw last week. Number one, don't think you're good with God because you keep a set of rules. You can be baptized so many times, you know every fish by their first name, it doesn't mean you're good with God. You can dress a certain way and it doesn't mean you're good with God. You can come to church even when we don't have church and sit in the pew Monday through Friday. It doesn't mean you're good with God. Number two, don't judge others for not keeping your rules. Just because they serve God differently than you do doesn't mean you're better or they're worse or they're better and you're worse. Don't judge others For not keeping your rules. Instead, number three, find joy and growth in Christ by knowing Christ. 
Spend time with Christ. Focus on Christ. Find Christ in the Word. Sing to Christ in song. Pray to Christ in prayer. And grow in Christ. And find joy and growth. Because Christ is what we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look at your word and to learn and grow. Lord, I thank you that it is not by our own effort that we become good with you, that we don't have to maintain our relationship with you through following rules or or working harder, but rather we maintain our relationship with you because you have placed us in it and you will keep us there. So Lord, help us to seek to know you and to live our lives in thankfulness and gratefulness for that incredible love that you have given to us, the forgiveness that you have placed on us, and the fact that we can be confident that we will stand before you without condemnation because of the work of Christ. And so then help us to interact with one another with grace and humility, with love serving one another through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.